I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are answering your questions about Anthony Trollope's The Warden. But best of all, we're answering your questions from the same room. It's the same room. This the is so room. exciting. I'm looking at your face. I mean, I look at your faces every right. time. But yeah, our feet, too. Actual faces. You can smell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, smell. I can't, but oh, maybe oh, you can. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. I'm trying not to. Sean's it's actually to my left and Heidi. Well, you're not to my right. You're straight ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, how are you gonna? How are you gonna sign out at the end then? Oh shoot! I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. For no one's on top. I have the whole episode to figure it out. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, maybe I should say something about a performance-based thing. Mm, or yeah. Like I don't want to know. Don't, don't, don't tell me the criteria. I wouldn't say that. I would. I would never do that. <laughs> you can well, do it. Just don't tell me. Now it's in the air. Yeah. Right. Well, we are going to be answering uh, listener questions about the warden first. How's it going? <laughs> How's it going? It's going so great. I'm here in Concord with you guys. And we got to see Daniel Nyeri, author of Everything Sad is Untrue, at the bookshop the other night with lots of close readers. Yeah, it was great to meet uh, so many of you. It was amazing. It was such a, such a fun time. And it was a blast. It's been, yep. it's been a great weekend. This is cherry on top. Recording in person? Yeah. 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 Sean, how are you? I am exactly the same as Heidi. Because that was my experience also. This is interesting talking to you in person. Because like on Zoom, you see, you know, it's a very like, uh, I don't want to say professional setup, but you know, it's you just kind of see sh- the shoulders and up. Like Heidi's sitting on the couch in my studio here, cross-legged on the couch. You've got your legs crossed. Is this how you always sit when you're recording? Are you leaning forward? Are you... You know, I because I've got the desktop mic yeah. at home, I'm usually oh, leaning yeah. forward. But you brought your headset thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing you did too. It makes it a little easier. That's right. Yeah. Well, Heidi, is this your like ready to talk about books pose? I, yeah. I mean, I feel like everything I do is my ready to talk about books pose. But you do seem especially poised, like coiled. This is just exciting to sit on a couch. Usually I'm sitting, you know, at my dining room table, which is much more professional. And this couch is <laughs> yes. so comfortable. Yeah, but this just feels Three like out of four legs I'm are really killing in. it. I'm yeah, three out of four legs work consistently. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, I think that's the newest need we have for my, for my space here because... Fair request. Yeah, exactly. The, leg, the fourth leg would heal. Right. Okay, well, we are going to answer some questions. Um, before we do that, though, let's, let's do a quick check-in on Sean. Sean, this is our final conversation on The Warden. Yeah. And just need to see, take a temperature here. I don't need your validation. Or pity. Especially that. On any level, okay? So, nor nor does Mr. Trollope. Thank you. Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) But if we don't keep remembering Trollope, (laughs) what are we even here for? You know, I... I, uh, Because... Of the way our conversations were going a week or two ago, I went onto Facebook, which I only, I usually only do in order to see what's going on on the Close Reads page. Right. Or it's the only reason to go to Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty Awkward. much. But I did seek out an Anthony Trollope uh, like fan page. Oh, that's why on you don't Facebook. need our validation. Did you find and one? I discovered a lively and well-populated <laughs> Anthony Trollope fan page. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it was just delightful. They're just there. I, you know, I will say I'm also, I also joined recently a Patrick O'Brien fan page on 
Is okay. that so? It's just a bunch of like people who like naval literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're delightful. They're maybe a little narrow sometimes in their their appreciations. But you really but, needed that with the trollop. But I really thing, needed yeah. it. It was great. So if anybody out there is listening and you feel like you need help, you need to find some trollop heads. When you need a friend, you should uh, seek out What's the, the name of this group. Trollopites. Oh, it's something obvious like lovers of Anthony Trollop or okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do they all say that uh, Barchester is better than the warden? Yes. Is that the consensus? That's the, the consensus, and that's okay. um, that's my opinion too. Okay. So if they're if you're looking for, if you liked the warden, you'll love Barchester Towers, and if you didn't like the warden, you, you should might give like you should Barchester. Give, <laughs> give Barchester a chance. <laughs> give the next book yeah. a chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's let's dig in. Let's answer some questions. Um, um, we have a handful here. And I want to go start with this first one from our friend Zena, who she gives us two questions, but I'm going to actually start with her second one because I think it's a good entry point into this conversation. We'll come back to her first one later. Okay, so she says, my second question has to do with the moral ecology of the Victorian era and whether this affects our reading as moderns. I think the question is how do we define manhood and masculine virtue in the context of when this novel was written? And is the enthusiastic, unenthusiastic response by some close readers to this book due to a different idea of manhood or male heroic virtue? Phrased differently, is there meant to be a truly heroic character in this book? If we cannot identify one, then is it due to the reader's attempts to hold 19th century character to a 21st century standard? Heidi, what do you think? So I think that I'm nearly convinced by many close readers in their response that my, that there is not meant to be a clear hero in this book. Uh, And so, and I've kind of vacillated on that, as you all know, from my comments here in the weeks past, Uh, is Mr. Harding supposed to be the, uh, the hero of the story in an unequivocal sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And last week I said, yes, he was. And then uh, having read many comments, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm not going to say no, but I think I've been swayed enough by some really good comments on that one. Um, But in terms of what a, what the Victorian masculine ideal is, uh, it is profoundly different from what we would say here in the 21st century. And, and that, but that ideal has what we might associate with more (laughs) traditional masculine virtues, right? Um, The men are supposed to they're supposed to go out and provide for a family. They're supposed to uh, lead the women. They're supposed to uh, be good moral pillars of society. Uh, and I think that we see in the warden a very traditional, very, very conventionally Victorian understanding of the masculine virtues. And, and Trollope doesn't seem to be challenging them at all. Uh, mm. Sean, would you agree with that? But trying to uphold them. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, there is a really big interest, maybe a little bit after Trollope is writing here, but there's a, a big interest that emerges in the Victorian period in defining right. man, manhood and, uh, and gentlemanliness. Mm-hmm. Right, as the 
the aristocracy is shifting in its role in Britain and uh, virtue is sort of democratizing. Uh, the idea of anybody being any that everybody can be a gentleman, anyone can be a gentleman, and should be, uh, and should be, yeah, it's very much tied to the anyone idea of cook. anyone can be <laughs> anyone can cook. Uh, is tied to what it means to be a man, uh, and you also have like the first muscular Christianity right. movement coming out of you know, this period too. Uh, so there is a lot of preoccupation, but I think I think you're absolutely right that the the concern of Trollops is not redefining anything, but yeah, upholding a thing that seems to be uh, maybe in jeopardy. Or Right. And it seems that there are three central male characters, Mr. Harding, Dr. Grantley, uh, and Mr. Bold, as well as the peripheral gentlemen in the story, yeah. uh, are, 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 evaluating themselves by that standard, by that mm-hmm. Victorian standard, a man who does his duty, a man who protects the ladies, a man um, who uh, always does the right thing. Right. Uh, and and that, that understanding of like the dutiful gentleman and the well-educated gentleman, the pillar of society, uh, seems to be what every single man in the story is evaluating himself by, Agreed, even Mr. Yeah. Bold, who considers himself a progressive. Uh, and so that seems very deeply ingrained uh, within the fabric of, of this particular novel. Yeah, and you're right. They all explicitly appeal to the standard at some point. Right. Yep. So in the question... Well, there's the question is: Is there meant to be a truly heroic character in the book? Was mm-hmm. part of it. The, that question almost seems anti-Victorian in right. some ways. Like that seems like a modern way to write a book. You know, the idea that you know, there's an anti-hero or no hero at all that yeah. doesn't seem traditional to me at all. So that's right. an interesting wrinkle in the question of: Are these male characters like are they exhibiting some kind of Victorian example of? masculinity that we don't understand that may be true but that seems like if if they're exhibiting something that's victorian and not ours then this other question about whether or not there's a hero that's our question and not theirs i think that's right (laughs) great (laughs) i think i think that's right uh so even if trollope is doing something like that Mm -hmm. uh it's not it's it's unusual it's strange that he would have the idea even of uh, not, not having a hero, which is why I'm inclined to think that maybe he is comfortable leaving a little bit of ethical ambiguity at the end, but that in many ways the warden really is meant to be the hero, or he is just very much ahead of his time in conceiving of a novel that ends that way. Yeah. I think maybe, for me, maybe a more fruitful framework over the last little while of trying to figure out my own responses to this novel uh, has been, is there a villain in the story Mm -hmm. less than is there a hero? Mm -hmm. And I agree. I think that Mr. Harding is our heroic character. Um, and I think I, I think, I think I am still standing by what I said last week that the, uh, Beadsmen are kind of collateral damage and that he, he did his best and did the right thing. Um, I don't think that anybody's meant to be the villain or the bad guy, except for Tom Towers. 
Um, but that the the critique of the novel seems to me to be social rather than personal. Like he's pointing at the disparities within the culture that the that the Jupiter has created this you know moral. Um, dilemma that can only be solved by an abdication of duty for the sake of a higher duty. Uh, and, and it's Mr. Harding that does that. Um, and, and I, I do not think that the novel dismisses the beadsman, but I do not think that the novel believes that Mr. Harding did the wrong thing. Mm. And I do. And so I'm <laughs> struggling, I think, to find the moral center of a, yeah. a, a moral center that I can put my weight on. But I, I still think the novel puts its weight on, um, on what Mr. Harding did. Yeah. Do you think that Trollope tries to have his cake and eat it too, as far as a villain goes? Go on. Uh, Because he does, I mean, if you ask somebody halfway through the book who the villain of the book is, they would probably say Dr. Grantley. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Trollope seems so aware of that that he has to apologize for the character right. before the end of the novel. Uh, do you think that he allows Dr. Grantley to be the villain self-consciously and then you know, re- rehabilitates him in that Maybe. way? I think he knows he's disagreeable and then tries to fix it in a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Um, Maybe by then he was already planning the next book. <laughs> right. Like if it were me, instead of that, I might go back and rewrite him some kind of moral, like soluble moral moment Mm -hmm. like he does with Mr. Harding uh, and with Mr. Bold. And he doesn't give that to, to Dr. Grantley. And it seems like he knows that and just tells us, don't judge him too harshly. And then throws him back in with, with Barchester Towers, which seems to me to be the biggest literary flaw in the novel. (laughs) Um, But I, I haven't read Barchester Towers. Sean just found the cushion for his headphones. This is one of those great moments when you're in person. He was, he's been traveling and the, the cushion on the inside of one of his headphones on his headset is missing. So it's kind of lopsided and he just found it and now he can't figure out how to put it on. I was sitting on it, but I think it's going to be too much of a disruption. Just imagine like fumbling. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. dear yeah. listener. Yeah. Just imagine Sean fumbling with a piece of foam yep. shaped like a donut. Shaped like a donut. That's exactly right. Um, Heidi, you were just saying that you're, you were kind of trying to differentiate between the choices he's making and maybe your own taste. Exactly. So with the thing that you don't have taste, that you have distaste for, that version of the story, do you think that that is a... Um, that's a harsh way to ask this. Is that a matter of taste or is that a matter that you think makes it a lesser Right. Work? I, that is a very, I think that's a really good question, David. Um, I think it's a literary issue, um, which this goes to why I'm not a huge fan of Victorian literature. Victorian literature tends to make judgments on behalf of the reader. And we've talked about that many times on the, on the podcast. Uh, Some listeners or some readers don't really mind that, but I do because if I disagree with the novelist's judgments, then I am left out of the novel. Hmm. And, and this is the warden has felt to me like that. I don't mind characters who make morally ambivalent 
choices. Like the novels are full of those. But when I'm told that I should think a certain way about it or led to believe implicitly that I should think a certain way about it or respond a certain way, uh, and I don't, then that puts me on the outside. Um, if, and I, and I think that this novel has that very much in it. Um, I, I think I am supposed to think that Mr. Harding did the best he could in a very difficult situation. I disagree that he did the best that he could. And so I feel so, But you don't I'm, think the book is leaving that open-ended? I I don't. Right. And I know okay. many listeners disagree with that. I think I'm supposed to go, wow, the social order, the Jupiter, Tom Towers, Mr. Bold, they all created oh, this all impossible yeah. situation for Mr. Harding. And he did the very best he could, which was a, uh, and, and in that way made a heroic effort. And then there was this collateral damage, which was really, really hard and sad, mm-hmm. but good job him. Yeah. Okay. And I don't so agree. you don't really agree with me and when I said that the book seems to be skewering him more than... I'm willing... I, I don't necessarily, but many listeners have chimed in um, and made compelling cases that yeah. he also is not the hero of the story. But I would say he's the best hero of the story, the most heroic. Um, and it's very clear he wants to do his duty. And I think we're supposed to sympathize with him. And I don't. And and so I'm on the outside, I think, of what the novel was trying to do. Um, whereas if Trollope had just told the story without telling me what to think, mm-hmm. yeah, then I would about, feel yeah. on the inside of the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned the notion of hospitality because I was going to save this we have a little, little, uh, little ad read that we're going to do here. Nice. <laughs> because I was going to save it after the first question, you know, like just a little transition. Uh, so our, you know, our mutual friends over at the Cersei Institute have a... Ah, friends of the show. Friends of the show, yeah. <laughs> have a, they have a spring conference coming up uh, March 21st through the 23rd at Thales College in Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is not very far from here, of course. And here's the theme. The theme is good medicine, the care and tending of the joyful and hospitable teacher. So we didn't plan that. Nice. Good job bringing up that word for me. Great. Um, it, so, you know, come join them over at Thales College uh, in Wake Forest uh, to contemplate how to care for parents and teachers so teachers and parents can care for their students. Classical educators have long debated whether virtue can be taught. Plato's uh, Socrates engages the question directly, St. Paul perhaps indirectly. Some people conclude, well, yeah, virtue can be taught, so teach it. Others, no, but you have to teach it anyway. What does this mean in the classroom? That's what this conference is going to contemplate. What is hospitality? What is his role in the classroom? How does it invite the patient to take his medicine? What is the medicine? Uh, what is the relationship between good medicine and a joyful heart? When is a crushed, uh, what is this crushed spirit in the classroom? What crushes the spirit? All these kind of questions will be central to these conversations at the conference. So again, this is the Circe Institute's 2024 Spring Conference in Wake Forest, hosted by Thales College. Here's some of the speakers, uh, Andrew Kern, we know him, uh, Joshua Gibbs, uh, we know him, uh, and other people like, um, oh, Sean Johnson. Mm. Sean Johnson's going to be speaking at this conference in Thales. Don't worry, there will be other options. <laughs> there will be other options besides you. What are you going to be talking about? Uh, I'm going to be talking about... Duty, you're going to be taking Heidi's duty and desire? <laughs> duty and desire and the war within each man. I'm going to be talking about... Taking a really long time to read one book. 
Oh, okay. Uh, and I actually took my talk title from a scene in the bear. The show? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, and in a movie. So We are uh, all crazy about this show. I know. Yeah. Spoiler alert, but there's, there's a great scene in the bear, and there's also one of my favorite food scenes in any movie. Both revolve around chefs taking a break to cook eggs. And uh, is it the omelet? It's it's the omelet, and then uh, the and then there's some. It's an omelet too in uh, the movie The Big Night with uh, Stanley Tucci. And okay, oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. Stanley Tucci and, yeah. and food. I'm sure Ian Holm is in it. It's, okay, yeah, all right. It's a great movie. Well, so Sean's gonna be there. Gonna be there. Uh, um, Monique Neal. Oh, nice. Yeah, she's gonna nice. Be there. Yeah. If you want to learn more about this conference, if you want a chance to meet Sean Johnson in person and hear what he has to say. <laughs> Uh, more than you already do right. each week on this if podcast. Could possibly interest you. <laughs> you could head to searcyinstitute.org slash events. I'll make sure the link goes in the show notes as well. Uh, registration does include free audio recordings of all the conference sessions and lunch is provided on Friday and Saturday. So again, that's searcyinstitute.org slash events. And you know, Sean being on this podcast, we had to mention it on the show. It's like, you know, Naturally. so you can go learn how to be hospitable from Sean. Yeah. You don't be really ashamed though. If you're giving your talk, and you're just not hospitable as a speaker. <laughs> That'd be a real blunder. So don't mess up, Sean. I just want to, you know, no Should real I make it real short so that people don't feel yeah, like exactly. they don't have to overstay their welcome? Up, don't mention us. Right. right. Yeah, 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 right. Don't mention yeah. us. Yeah. I hope this doesn't change your opinion of Heidi and David. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back to some questions here. This was a question that Elise posted, and I believe she also posted this. Yeah, okay. She said she's reposting from the episode on chapters 11 through 15. She says that she found some really interesting Trollope quotes, including in, in an introduction to his Dr. Thorne. And she says, forgive the length that she tried to shorten them. But basically, I'm going to read a quote here that she shares, which is about Trollope's goals as a novel. And we're going to discuss, the question basically is, does he succeed in his own goals? Which when an author says, this is what I think good writing is, there's a standard we can hold That's them right. to. Right? That's right. That's right. So if you're a writer, don't put out there what yeah, you think you're writing. Don't ever is. tell anybody. Um, okay. So from his autobi- autobiography, uh, he writes what is a supposedly a slightly sarcastic comment. That's what the editor of the autobiography says. He says, among English novels of the present day, a great division is made. There are sensational novels and anti-sensational novels. <laughs> The novels, uh, sensational novelists and anti-sensational novelists. The novelists who are considered to be anti-sensational are generally called realistic. The readers who prefer the one who are supposed, the readers who prefer the one are supposed to take delight in the elucidation of character. They, they who hold by the other are charmed by the construction and gradual development of a plot. All this is, I think, a mistake, which mistake arises from the inability of the imperfect artist to be at the same time realistic and sensational. A good novel should be both, and both in the highest degree. End quote. The other quote, re- related quote is, quote, No novel is anything unless the readers can sympathize with the characters. Truth let there be, truth of description, truth of character, human truth as to men and women. If there be such truth, I do not know what a no- that a novel can be too sensational. So, Elise says, can, does Trollope succeed in the warden of fulfilling his own ideals as a writer? And I guess we can focus on that last bit there. Sean, um, no novel is anything unless the readers can sympathize with the characters. Is that for you what... Well, first of all, do you agree with that? No novel is anything. I think so. I think if you... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a novel 
where I didn't sympathize with any of the characters. Well, there's lots of novels about characters that are unlikable. That's one of the big things that people have problems with those novels. That's true. Oftentimes, you still are given a sympathetic character, even if it's not the, the main character. And maybe an exception would be when an author sets themselves the challenge of creating an unlikable character and then working to make you sympathize with them. Um, but I think if, if that's not at work and the characters are simply not sympathetic, it is really hard to care about the novel. It seems like this idea that, a no- that characters have to be truly sympathetic or empathize. I know those are two different things, but yeah. that seems like it's in keeping with the Victorian, like this sort of, we're going to stand up for the, poor boys who work in the street scooping poop and horse poop. And like, well, I think that's, I don't understand. I ought to be honest. I don't understand. I don't agree with that. I think that just has more to do with who you choose to make the sympathetic characters more than uh, whether or not a novel has to have sympathetic characters. I mean, different, different authors in different times have made different choices about who the sympathetic characters are or should be. Uh, like Jane Austen is not writing about street urchins. Sure. Uh, but Charles Dickens is. Yeah. But they're both, they both intend to create sympathetic characters, I think. You, Heidi, what do you think? I think that that's true about the novel as a form. Right. I don't think that's true about fiction in general. Yeah, I would agree with that. But for, you know, for example, I'm thinking about fairy tales. Sure. Right. They're archetypal characters. Like it's interesting. Uh yeah, there's yeah, something yeah. different than the humanity of the characters. Yeah. Um, but I think in a novel, specifically, yeah, I think that that's true. You do have to have compelling characters and you have to be rooting for somebody. Uh, or if you have a villain that you want to be a compelling character, you have to give them something that makes them human. A believable right? motivation. Yes, like or Ebenezer a, yeah. Scrooge is yeah, a great example right. of that as a Victorian novel, right? Um, he is not actually very likable. The whole point is that he's being redeemed. Uh, and so you have to, Dickens had to make him both villainous enough for us to care whether or not he, uh, or to root against him, but human enough to root for him. That's actually pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and he succeeds brilliantly. Um, I so I think I think I agree with that across the board. So then, do you, David? I mean, I don't I don't necessarily agree that it's a def, has to be a defining characteristic of the novel. I mean, I, he's so he says, um, no novel is anything unless the readers can sympathize with the characters. Um, and then he says, truth let there be truth of description of character, human truth as to men and women. I don't know that sympathy and truth Humanity, of characterization yeah. has to be right one and the same. When he first said sympathy, I heard like kind of that Victorian sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that, you know, we've talked about Dickens being guilty of many times. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Tolstoy is actually often accused of that um, with his peasant characters, right? He's trying to speak for the Russian peasant and then he makes them too sentimentally sad and pathetic and in need of care. Um, And the Victorians were very guilty of that in their social consciousness in their novels. Um, and, And so if that's what he means, I think he's wrong. But if he means... 
I, I definitely like the signifier human better than sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he uses both. Yeah. Um, does he, is he succeed? Is this just asking the same? Is this just asking you whether you, I mean, are we just asking the same question that we've been talking around for the whole series? Yeah. You'll say no. <laughs> so, I'm pointing at Heidi. No. And Sean will say yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably right. You okay. don't think he succeeds in making sympathetic characters? I mean, he seems to be, I mean, plot's not absent from this description, but he seems to be defining the novel without a primary concern for plot. Right. Which could be a problematic definition of the novel, but it also seems like your major reservations about the novel have been more plot oriented. My major reservation about the novel has been the voice of the narrator. Well, that's true. And and so I'm like 51% he didn't succeed, 49 he did, <laughs> and you could probably sway me <laughs> to your way of thinking. I do yeah, I think a- I do care about these characters. And yeah, so in that right. sense they yeah. they are very human. And and I think maybe I'm going to go the other way, 49% that he does it and 51 that he does. It didn't because, take long. No, because my major issue with this novel has been that the narrator has been telling me to think a certain way about characters I think differently about. Right. And I want him to get out of the way and, and stop uh, telling me because I care about them and I want to think what I think and all what he thinks. That's, that's sort of what I was trying to get at. It seems like that tension can't exist unless he has done a decent job. Agreed. Creating the characters. Okay, I agree with you now. <laughs> yeah, because why would I care at all? Right. If he hadn't succeeded in giving me human characters that I would like to make my own judgments on. Which is a, an interesting problem. Yeah. That, mm. that he has succeeded so well that he gets in conflict with himself. But this yeah. goes, so we were talking about this at dinner last night with our friend Matt Bianco, right? The idea that there's four elements that make a, I don't know if elements is the right yeah, word. Levels of, levels, levels of, of meaning. Interpretation. Uh, interpretation. And that most, very few novels do all four. Right. And there's, so maybe, yeah, go, yeah, yeah please. I was just um, ask. So the, uh, this comes from medieval, actually biblical interpretation. That yeah, the fourfold method. Exactly. The four levels of interpretation of the scriptures, which, you know, began in the early church fathers. Augustine did this in City of God and in Confessions, and then that uh, what became kind of codified through the development of medieval, medieval scholasticism. I mean, you could even argue that New Testament authors did this with the Old Testament. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but these four levels are number one, the literal or historical way of interpreting a novel, what actually happens on a literal plane. Uh, the second level is the moral level. What are the what what does the what does this have to tell us about how to live, right? Um, and how the character, the, the should question about the characters. Uh, the third level is the allegorical level. How does this uh, apply um, allegorically? Does do the characters represent something? Like, does what the one ring, for example, in <laughs> Lord of the Rings represents? 
power exerted for domination, Tolkien tells us. Even though he tells us not to read it as an allegory, <laughs> he does tell us that. Um, we're, we're allowed to allegorize the ring. Um, and then the fourth level is the most difficult to, uh, to explain, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but um, it's the anagogical or cosmological level. What does this story have to say about like a spiritual battle between good and evil? Uh, and of course, the medievals would have understood this as um, the war between the, the spiritual war in the heavens between Christ and 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 the, the angels and demons yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Or or you could say that what does it have to do with the destiny of humanity or yes. the cosmos? The eschatological yeah. like kind of like t- movement towards the end of all things. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, those are the four levels. Can you repeat them one more time so that people if they're Sure. Just you have yeah. to do the summaries just yeah. the quick. Number one is the literal or historical mm-hmm. level. Number number two is the moral. Uh, number three is the allegorical, and number four is the anagogical, which is A N A G O G I C A L. Anagogical. So one of the things that we were talking about is that very few books do all of those things. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the point was made somewhere along the way that like Jane Austen doesn't do that last one. Yeah. Which I would disagree with, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> we but, will. We can talk about this summer at the retreat. Yeah. It's all perfect. in Mansfield Park. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, we have to define <laughs> some terms here to have this conversation. But do you think that, can a book still be great if it doesn't, is, it, is, that, the de, is that the definition of a great book that it does all for? That is what this scholar is arguing. Um, she is saying. In this talk that Matt Bianco brought up. Yes. Yeah. Amber Dyer yeah. is arguing that a great book succeeds on all four levels. Uh, and, um, and so that is now kind of part of a general conversation amongst thoughtful reading people. Is she right about this? Is this, this, this theory that she's putting out there, um, does it have weight or value? And probably the one, maybe the, well, I mean, which one do you think would be the most up for debate? Out of the four levels, yeah. probably oh, the final level yeah, for sure. Number four. You think more than, uh, was it metaphorical? What's the third yeah, one? Yeah. Yeah. Metaphorical. The allegorical level, um, is, I, I think that that's, that's what's so in, um, compelling to readers who are, I think, you know, especially Christians, we are very good at the first two, right? We'll read, you know, for example, read a Bible story like Noah's Ark. We're great at being like, this is what happened. And also we're going to send an archaeological team out to Turkey to examine Mount Ararat (laughs) and figure out if this literally historically happened. Number one, we're great at. Was it a literal seven-day creation, right? Um, We are, we're great at thinking on those those terms. Uh, The second term, we're also really great at what yeah. is this kind of moral, What's the moral of, this of the story, story right um and we uh, ask that question even when we shouldn't <laughs> it, that's exactly right um and then and and the victorians loved that level that was like yeah. their favorite level i mean this yeah. is when people were adding morals to aesops that's right, right. Yeah. yes um and the third level i think is so compelling to readers who are kind of waking up to a new way of thinking about books like is this how does this apply beyond how does this story apply beyond itself into the everyday life of regular people like me am i like frodo am i right symbolic meaning yes like that's so fun um but that fourth one is a little bit more difficult to kind of wrap your head around especially um in secular stories yeah uh and so that's kind of an ongoing conversation um among you know 
readers. Um, but I think that with this particular book, we've got number one and number two, check, check. <laughs> it's literal and moral. Yeah. So when it talks about the idea of allegorical, one thing that I'm, I've, I've seen different definitions of, is that just the sense that there is image-laden meaning? Is that enough to talk about when we're talking about allegorical, or do, are we, does it have mm -hmm. to be correl like does it have to be correlative meaning, as in like an allegory? We have to actually create allegory I in terms of. I think it can be self-referential, yeah, and yeah. image-laden, symbolic, um, archetypal, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that fourth level, at least according to the medievals, needs to be oh, spiritual. Yeah, yeah, I think modern books where you encounter the fourth level the most are books that have a bleak take on it. Right? So that have some sort of nihilistic conclusion that they come to. Like I, Camus probably does the fourth level. Cormac McCarthy. But it's a big bummer. Yeah. McCarthy. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the road is, I mean, the road is very four levels. Like, yeah. and we're just about oh, to read right. that yeah. on the show. It has all four levels all the way through Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, there's, there are plenty of them that, but you're right. They tend to see the tragic trajectory without the comic and the comic is more true, right? right? We live in a comedy um, as Christians. We know that or believe and that trust in that. The first work of literature that really nailed it doing all of this, or the first time it was really consciously attempted was Dante, like the divine mm -hmm. comedy. And I think there's a reason for that. Right. I mean, he was consciously trying to accomplish something that, yeah. that, Apply these four levels. That's right. Yes. Well, yes, <laughs> pretty. We're pretty sure. There's a letter out there to his patron that lays that all out, and every ten years or so, historical consensus switches on whether that letter is genuine or or not. But you don't have to worry about that. It's all there. I mean, you can read it in a comedy. It's yeah, the, right. Yeah, whether he meant to or not. Yeah. So is it like, or whether he meant to and told anybody, or whether he yeah, meant to and right. didn't tell anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So does this book not reach the allegorical then? Um, I don't know. Where does, where does the mm. notion of sympathy, that was the question, where does the notion of creating characters that are sympathetic and engaging with the reader on that level fall in something like this, in this framework? Sympathy is a level two question. Yeah. It, to evoke a moral response, an empathetic response, uh, or a sympathetic response is is a is a moral telos, right? A moral purpose or end. And I think I think it touches the third level. I think he intentionally draws parallels between biblical tropes and images, right? There are twelve beadsmen and there's yeah, uh, right. one who one who's faithful and stays with him the whole time, and there's one who kind of stirs everybody else up against him and uh but there's silver involved in, in the betrayal. Well, the, 12, yeah. the 12 in the Bible is self-referential. Yeah, that's right. In its own, yeah. right? Right. So, um, okay, let's, let's jump to a couple other questions here. We can, I'm sure we can swing back around to this. Um, okay, here is a question from Branson. She says, I found myself thinking about this again at church yesterday. I think one of the most frustrating things for me about this novel was how it was about the church without having any real discussion of the relationships between the men of the church and the head of the church, i.e. God. Because I, thought, because I thought again about this idea of duty and how sometimes God does indeed ask us to trust him enough to recognize that he doesn't need us in a certain role. 
Sometimes saying no is harder than accepting a role we aren't meant to have because our pride wants us to think we are irreplaceable and uniquely important. She says, I could say more about this, but I will leave it at that. So again, this is not a question, but what do you think of that? Like, do you think the book does not address, as she says, this is, she's saying this is a frustration for her, does not address that relationship between the men of the church and God comprehensively enough? Sean is making a, um, what is that? Um, he's pursing his lips. And, it's a pensive face. Yeah. It's a pensive yeah. face. Yeah. I th- not to be confused with a pensive. <laughs> right. Very different. I think that that relationship is taken for granted by the characters. I think when when Do men like, like by the author too, like he, he assumes that we are. I think he. I think he creep. Well, probably. I mean, it's the Church of England, and everybody reading this is you know initially is English, right? Um, okay. Yeah. But I think that he creates characters who take that relationship for granted. So when the bishop. When Dr. Grantley, when they appeal to their duties, uh, partly it's an appeal to this sort of universal understanding of what what is expected of a man. Uh, But it's also an appeal to their office, which they understand as God-given. I think it's intentional that that's maybe disappointing, the way that it's handled sometimes. Uh, Dr. Grantley is very pragmatic, in the language he uses to talk about his duty as a churchman. But I think that's one of the, the built-in tragedies or you know, the, the intentional elements of the novel is that uh, Grantley's sense of duty to the church has all of these uh, layers of worldly concern between his conscious thinking and God, right? the divine. Uh, but I don't think it's not because he doesn't feel those, those things. I think that where I agree with you is that Mr. Harding is the closest uh, character we have to someone with any kind of acknowledgement of personal piety. Yeah. Well, he puts his conflict eventually in terms of being able to stand before God. Right, he does, but he that I think what implicit i I think, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but implicit in that question is the idea of a personal relationship right. with God right right and and that is largely absent from the Victorian understanding of Christianity, yeah, yeah, um, and i don't I don't mean that people didn't have true piety or truly right. loved God or had a devotion to God, um, but that the uh, there was such a conflation of moral duty with Christian piety, yeah. Uh, that that for Doctor Grantley, his job, his paid job, is an institutional role in an institutional church. Like he's thinking about protecting the church, and everything's filtered through that. His perception of that duty, um, and. So I think that Mr. Harding certainly is a truly, a a true Christian and a pious man, Um, but there wouldn't have been any kind of sense of where we're 
praying to to like discern the voice of God in this. It was that was not Victorian Christianity. Right. It wasn't institutional Christianity, uh, and it was a and a public duty and Christian duty are the same. Right. There's a conflation, um, and so I think that it gives a very accurate version of yeah. Victorian Christianity that Trollope doesn't seem to question at all. Mm. He seems to accept it wholesale. I think he reports it faithfully. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You mean you don't know if he, he likes it? I don't know if he, if he presents it with 100% approval. Sure, but I don't think that's because he's a pious Christian. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's Right? Fair. I think it's social commentary. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Hey, Sean, do you need me to close that blind a little? I'm okay. You okay? Yeah. <laughs> He's like looking at every time he looks at me, he kind of squints a little because the sun's coming through the blinds there. Just winking at you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here's a question from Elizabeth. Uh, she also has a question about the church. She says, the attorney general explains at the beginning that the proper defendant in the lawsuit is the church. That is never brought up again. <laughs> but it's the church that let this disaster happen, She's, Elizabeth says. Even the bishop at the end opts not to use the money to help the people at all. My question is, was the lawsuit such a convenient plot device that Trollope chose not to engage with the idea of the church's responsibility? Or is there enough in the novel that the absence of blame on the church is noticeable and a statement in and of itself? I wish it were the latter, but based on how everyone has read and talked about the book, I fear it is the former. And I think that that's further evidence that Trollope wasn't really diving into the complexity of the relationships at stake. Heidi... So here's the question again. Was the lawsuit such a convenient plot device that Trollope chose not to engage with the idea of the church's responsibility? Or is there enough in the novel that the absence of blame on the church is noticeable and a statement in and of itself? Oh, I think she's right. It is the former, not the latter. This is a, the commentary in this book is social, not spiritual. Right. I think that if it were spiritual, you could, he, the bishop, uh, (laughs) Uh, Trollope would not be able to just sort of cast aside the behavior of someone like Grantley and say, he's actually a good guy because he's not engaged enough with the spiritual and implications right. of his behavior. Mm-hmm. He's just able to say, don't worry about it. He's, he's actually a good guy because what he's really concerned with is the social choices, that these, the, the social implications of the choices him and Bold and these other men make. Now, Harding, to some degree, it actually engages with the spiritual consequences. But really, he's the only character that within himself is dealing with the notion of conscience. conscience. Yeah, Although yeah, Bold yeah. Well, kind of, they, all of them kind of are. Conscience formed by Christian piety. As opposed right. to social yes. concerns. Yes. Social ju- justice, right. if you will, to right. use our common current yeah. parlance. Yeah, Bold has a Roman virtue, but uh, it's not. Yeah, his conscience isn't formed by piety. Right. Right. What do you think, Sean? Anything else to add to this? Uh, no, I... I it doesn't make it. Agree. It doesn't make it a bad novel, but it mm. makes it's helping us define the novel on its own terms. Like, what are the terms the novel is telling its story on? Right. Yeah. Well, and we. I mean, we live in in such a secular society that it's really hard for us to wrap our head around the church having as much social clout. Yes. As it did in the Victorian times, and. I think that I think that Trollope is well aware that that's part of the problem. To your point, yeah. Sean. Right. We have to remember that this is a ripped from the headlines kind of plot. Yeah. Right. Uh, these are these are issues that are going on. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, that's right. Right. But there's nobody. Like there's absolutely no framework for like, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, <laughs> and what is he tell? How is he telling you to vote in this case? Like that. That is. 
that would be just like voodoo magic. Yeah. Like uh, there's no. Well, and, yeah. And I think we mentioned this earlier in the series, but the, which prompted a lot of, a lot of, uh, reform movements in the English church shortly after this period. All right. By the end of the 19th century, you had like the Oxford movement Mm -hmm. uh, where there were, there was a small group of Anglicans who were calling for some sort of, now we would call it like an evangelical kind of. Right. uh, Well, and across the pond, something very different is happening. (laughs) Yeah. Revolution. Yeah, this is true. I mean, you have like great second great awakening. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do a couple more here. Um, Here's one from Constance. Don't you think it was important for Trollope's purposes to leave the beadsmen in worse circumstances after all the dust settled? First, it is dangerous to make rash reforms, she puts reforms in quotation marks, because they tear at the fabric of society and may, or even inevitably, do more harm than good. Also, the comfortable have a tendency to romanticize the poor and villainize the rich. Trollope shows all have sinned. Uh, Harding shows the right way to deal with social ills. Do the best you can where you are. Grantly, in contrast, gave to the poor, but he doesn't care for them. Harding is a saintly figure, walked in the steps of Jesus, lived among the unlovable, touched and cared for them, endured a Gethsemane day in London alone. Um, I'm summarizing some of what she says here. Prepared uh, last summer for the 12 to tell them goodbye and bless them. And you mentioned, there's an 11 plus one she mentions here, that you mentioned, Sean. Then shed his earthly coil, no longer warden to go on to a rather heaven-like afterlife. Sharing meals, making music before the Lord, united with friends and family. I've enjoyed thinking about this book very much, so thank you for including it. I liked it much better than The Scarlet Letter. Seems similar in, in, uh, in, seems, I'm not sure what she's saying here. Maybe similar, not too much in plot, but there is lots to talk about. Um, so the question at the beginning there was, don't you think it was important for Trollope's purposes to leave the beadsmen in worse circumstances after all the dust settled? What do we think of that choice to, to do that? Heidi, what do you think? I, totally agree that that's necessary for him in order to highlight the social, to make his social commentary. I think that my issue is not with that. My issue is with, with Stephen Harding, what I think is abandoning them because he couldn't face some stupid newspaper article like that. And he didn't, he didn't like being accused. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think I think I agree I, I really like all those connections she's making um, which answer you know if she's right about that that answers the question on whether there's an attempt at some kind of anagogical or allegorical interpretation of the story or writing into the story um, so I'm willing to concede that that might have been Trollope's intention period yeah yeah I would say the same I think that there all of the problems with the conclusion of the novel are there that we've already discussed, but I think it is important to his aim that that's how things end. Yeah. Uh, that the, the damage is uh, on some level irreparable. And I, to, I think she identifies <coughs> the cause, you know, aptly. It's the rash reform that leads to the, uh, an outcome that's worse than the, the starting crisis. So, Heidi, you might like this one. Um, it says the, uh, this is from Elizabeth, the Cypres doctrine, she put some French in here, which you can go read because I'm not going to try, allows the AG to seek court approval for modification of a charitable trust. 
Well, I'm no 19th century expert. I do think this was possible. The church should have asked for that, and the AG should have advised them how to do it. So not only did Harding drive me nuts with his martyrdom that helps nobody <laughs> but himself, but so did every other character who just plain didn't try to find a solution to the problem. Sorry, I just had to vent because that was irritating. It would have worked better if Trollope presented the solution and then indicated that nobody tried, but since he didn't explain there was a solution, it just seemed like everyone was trapped, but they weren't. Word. I mean, I didn't yeah. know that about any of that legal stuff, but thank you for sharing my frustrations yeah. with this novel. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, that, that locates my frustration with the novel. I, you say what you want about Harding, I, I feel for the guy. My biggest frustration in the world of the plot is that the church and the men who represent it don't, do, don't make greater attempts to solve the problem. Uh, right? They assume, they assume no guilt or responsibility and then just try and get a 100% free and clear legal win. Right. But any attempt to, uh, right, they could like, implement scheduled pay decreases for the warden that translate to scheduled, you know, yeah. pay increases for the beadsmen. So or, is this, is this uh, meant to be, is that the criticism? They don't do anything? I mean, I think that's, I think that is a very, very clear implicit criticism is that the the institution really cannot see itself as in error in any way right and precedent is the the main point of appeal for that we have been doing it this way and no one has complained therefore what's the problem yeah yeah okay here we got we're running out of time so let's do a couple more here uh, let's see. Carolyn has a question. She says, this is not a rhetorical question. Um, I want to hear from you on this question. Why do these churchmen not take biblical counsel seriously regarding the correct steps for addressing interpersonal disputes? Is Bold or Grantly more at fault for the failure in this? How did it escalate to be public so quickly? I mean, is it just that the, the novel's not actually concerned, that you've been pointing out that this is a novel that is concerned with social questions, it's not concerned right. with the biblical teaching on something like this. Not, so it becomes right. public because it has to become public for the, to create the circumstances in which Harding is going to, I mean, it's just, that's just a plot thing, I think. Right. I, I think that's right. I will also say that having worked 13 years in Christian schools, it's because no one does that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, yeah. I mean, I, it, this is, this is, I, I think the point Trollope is making is not that we don't follow the Matthew 18 steps for biblical conflict resolution, mm -hmm. but he is saying that there is a, that the church has an institutional power uh, that impacts the social order and has a, a power within the social order that has created injustice and that impacts human people. And he's showing us one of those situations. And I guess to be to be lawyerly about it, it's not the church that is suing anybody. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a big red flag, sure. But that's not what's happening here, right? The churchmen are not bringing the complaint against a brother; they're having somebody outside of the church yeah, bring is, a complaint against them. This is the this is yeah. It's not within the confines of yeah. the church. It's actually what we're, really what's at stake is a legal question, right? right. Which then Harding takes upon himself and I don't blame him for feeling <laughs> yeah. terrible about yeah like he's at the crux people. of it yeah he's being he feels it 
that he is being morally accused. Uh, he he feels in himself that he is being accused of being immoral. Yeah. And that bothers him. And he but can't convince himself that, that he's not. The people are not bringing to the church a moral question. They're bringing a legal question, which then right. the media sensationalizes. And, yeah. it, and it, there is a moral question there. But the legal question is not really tied to a moral one. It's just that they use, they bring, they make it moral to help win the case. Exactly. And the person bringing the complaint is not a fellow churchgoer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's do this. I mentioned we'd come back to Zena's first question. This is oh, her first yeah. question. Uh, she says, first of all, I'm completely with you on the lost and the good place discussions. So <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, she says, my first question has to do with what you think the hospital symbolizes. It seemed to just be a function of plot until the end mm. when it fell into disrepair after Harding left. Sorry, until the very end, period. When it fell into disrepair after Harding left, I felt a strong conflict as if the outcome were somehow an indication of what should or should not have happened. Um, Sean, do you, how do you read this, this, the sort of question of symbolism surrounding the, the hospital itself? Uh, well, can you, you want to read the next paragraph to there? Oh yeah, of course. Sorry. Is it possible that at this moment, the hospital was functioning as an objective correlative? If the hospital went plodding along or actually did better after Harding's departure, I think I would have felt much differently. This seems to indicate to me that the hospital bears a bit more emotional weight to the story than one might expect. I think that's a great point. I agree. Uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about the, the way an object or a symbol in a story should start out, I mean, and this is just her opinion, man, but uh, <laughs> should start out as having little meaning or weight, but then gradually accrue weight and symbolic value as the story goes on. Uh, and I think that's probably what's happening here. It's not so artfully done that we can kind of trace the, <laughs> the process, but it is revealed in the end, I think, that the hospital has that that kind of secondary significance and that it becomes a, a kind of barometer for, for how successful the, the efforts of the characters in the novel have been. Yeah, I agree. I mean, objective correlative, correlative got brought up. Do you want to add anything? Take, take a shot. <laughs> yep. Right. Everybody take a shot. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that anytime you have a hospital in a story, pay attention to it. Right. Right. You know, the place, yeah. the place of healing. And the hospital the is of often a metaphor for the church. Yes, exactly. Uh, and as the church failed, so the hospital failed, right? Um, and, and Trollope is surely say, pointing out uh, the failure of the church to care for its own, um, including... On, on all levels of society. So we're seeing a, uh, a systemic failure of the church and the social order um, because of all of the vices that have been brought to the forefront in the characters as well as in this system. Yeah. Yeah, and it becomes, it has become in the world of the novel more like, well, more like a, a parallel aristocracy mm -hmm. right, with a dignity and a decorum that needs to be upheld. And that's what's at stake for people like Dr. Grantley. Uh, it's not first and foremost, a, a hospital for sick people, sick right. souls. Right. And Dr. Grantley has all of the vices and virtues of the institutionalized church. And Mr. Bold has all of the vices and virtues of the progressive movement. And Mr. Harding is kind of this like 
good man caught in the middle and who's a bit of a, um, a vessel maybe for the person of the Victorian man of conscience, the gentleman of conscience. Um, and, uh, and then Eleanor is the ideal Victorian maiden um, who is like a little bit ridiculous and overdramatic, uh, just like all those Victorian women, you know, that don't really, that, that has this, but she also has this like kind of militant heroic virtue to her as well. Um, and, and so they're, they, the characters are all representative and I know that that's intentional on Trollope's part uh, and the hospital of course is, um, is, is part of that and how tied the, that the, the churches to the hospital is very representative of the impact of, uh, of the institution of the church on the Victorian moral order mm. and what's at stake. Okay. A couple more. I know again, abrupt transition. So we get on a Q and a, okay, here's one. When speaking with his sister, John bold says of Eleanor, Eleanor, I would give her my soul if it would serve her. Everything I have is hers, if she will accept it. My house, my heart, my all. Every hope of my breast is centered in her. Her smiles are sweeter to me than the sun, and when I see her in sorrow as she now is, every nerve in my body suffers. No man can love better than I love her. End quote. Now, the hopeless romantic in me melts when I read that, says the <laughs> questioner. I, this is not me speaking. But when I reach the end of the warden and find that the men of the hospital, whom this was all supposedly about in the first place, are left in a worse position than before, I can't help but wonder what Trollope is trying to tell us about Bold's choices. Is Trollope ultimately asking the reader to condemn Bold for placing the love of a woman above the love of humanity as represented by the men of the hospital, who are strangers after all to him, or who are after all strangers to him? Or is he just casting aspersions on Bold for not being committed enough to the matter once he has interfered to see to the eventual welfare of the men whose lives he has disturbed by his actions. Sean? So do we, are we supposed to condemn Bold? Because he places the love of a woman above the cause. I, condemn maybe is strong. It feels like this is the point in the novel when he starts to ease up on Bold. Uh, as soon as soon as he allows his his romantic sensibilities to dominate everything else, I I think it that is a valid reason for criticizing Bold, but it's also the moment when the novel begins to give him a bit of a pass. He softens out of because of love, and uh, and then shortly thereafter he just kind of vanishes. Right. right. Uh, so I don't know that the novel is inviting us to condemn him, although it does. This is another place where it seems like Trollope is attempting to do two things simultaneously, like have his cake and eat it too, uh, because it does complete the picture of Bold as ridiculous uh, and compromised, even though he... He talks a big game and thinks a big game about uh, his own virtue and idealism. Uh, well, I, I think he, I think Bold sees possibility in the choices that he's making. He sees a future. Yeah. He's doing this not just because he sees it as a cause, but because it's a cause that he, by which he can make a name for himself. Yeah. And I think right. that you, we can all judge that however we wish. <laughs> and then he, what he does is he, he then switches gears because he realizes that more than the cause, what he really wants is the girl. And then that leaves the cause was always just 
some form of pursuing his own happiness. Yeah. It never was a cause. I mean, I'm always surprised that what doesn't come up really is how his marrying her could be a means of alleviating her suffering, even of the warden's suffering. Uh, he's, we find out early on that he's pretty well off. He could just marry her and care for them both. Right? He caused this problem in the first place. But he doesn't think of it, or he never presents it in those kinds of terms. He almost exclusively presents it as something he needs to feel guilty about because he would be um, ruining the father and gaining the daughter. And then in the end, he gets the girl and the brother-in-law too. That's right. And a new best bud. This is purgatory, right? Oh, yeah, right. How do you, what do you think about um, that? I think that he is I think he's redeemed by this action not I don't know if I think that he's ridiculous because of it because he he does it to save her and to save Mr. Harding from the suffering he has caused them yeah and I, I agree with that and so I I don't see him as like um what's the word you Uxorious? How do you say that? Yeah. What is that word? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, uxor, uxorious. Uxorious. That's like Adam's sin in Paradise Lost, right? Like that he, um, that he sublimates his masculine virtue uh, because a woman doesn't want it or like it, right? For he loves his wife more than he loves virtue, and I don't think that's what Mr. Bold is being here. He's not just Ken here. No. Yes. Um, he is. I think this is his best moment. And I think that the way we see that even within the world of the novel is that he stands up to Tom Towers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and endures Grantley's scorn. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and he is ennobled by his love for, uh, this woman who's presented as as a total Victorian ideal. So, yep. is that is that how he, Trollope takes on Dickens, where he basically is like, this notion of these social justice causes yes. is silly. Like, this is dumb. And that, I think, is the novel's best moral moment. Like, mm-hmm. that, this is when I think that the novel is good, is that Bold is willing to give up his future mm-hmm. as this, you know, crusading social reformer who just ends up hurting people along the way for the sake of his own glory. Yeah. Um, and because he is a man of conscience. And so he thought being a man of conscience was this crusading social reform, but actually being a man of conscience is to live a quiet life, supporting a family, like investing in this local life. Devotion to real individual people yes, that you know and exactly, can see with your eyes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I leave the novel like Bold's the best of them at all, best yeah. of them all, but I didn't like him at first. And that's the storyline that I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what I was trying to get at earlier is that Trollope, though, holds this moment until, in many ways, the damage that he has done is irreparable, even by this yes. act of virtue. I totally agree with that. So Tom, Ta- yeah. Tom Towers has to come in and just, you know, you know, he kind of takes over as a new bad guy. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, Sean, this one's for you. Maybe, well, maybe you know this, Heidi. I don't know. We've got our Trollope head over here that might be, so I'm going to him first. Trollope takes a pretty good swipe at Dickens and the warden. Does Dickens ever respond? Oh. 
I mean, I, honestly, I just I think everything that Dickens ever write was a response to his critics. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's a. I don't mean that in a negative sense. Precise, exactly. Right. I mean, that's just. I mean, he's he's just so concerned with his reading public, right? Yeah. That's a good question. I. I don't have an encyclopedic, you know, familiarity with, with Dickens or even a very vivid memory of all of the Dickens that I've read. I can't think of a particular instance where he does that, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Well, I just Googled, does Dickens respond to Trollope? And it says here, elephants are known for their outstanding memory. Also <laughs> Dickens. Though he didn't reply to Trollope's attack immediately, didn't mean he didn't... F- didn't mean he could forget. He countered with a whole book 15 years later, as it was expected of a novelist. There is a article. Which one? Does it say? <laughs> There's an article that first came up um, on a site called Drudiana with an article, Sven Karsten, Dickens versus Trollope, the history of rivalry. Uh, looks like you can, you can definitely look this up a little bit. Um, Find an answer. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to read this a little bit, but I'd, you know. So the message of this is we're learning it alongside you. That's right. Yeah. So we do not have we do the not know the answer to the question. <laughs> but I, I mean I'm not surprised even if it's debatable, I'm not surprised that there aren't that there are people out there who say yes, he definitely did. Yeah, right. I mean Dickens being Dickens. Dickens being Dickens, he probably gave him the Dickens right. eventually. <laughs> Sean, last question. Sue says, tonight I started reading The Solzhenitsyn Authorized Abridgment of the Gulag uh, by Edward E. Erickson. In the foreword to the 2018 edition, Jordan Peterson wrote, crediting Solzhenitsyn with demonstrating these causes and effects, quote, any attempt to attribute the existence of inequality to the functioning of the productive institutions we have managed to create and protect so recently in what is still accurately regarded as the free world will hurt those who are weakest and most vulnerable first. End quote. Reading this brought immediately to mind the ending of The Warden, yeah. says Sue. It seemed to surprise some readers that the Beadsmen were the ones who suffered after all was said and done. Trollope didn't have the benefit of reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Was Trollope a visionary, a student in the ways of society that would be demonstrated in an incredible work over a century later? So, Sean, final word here. Do you see <laughs> Anthony Trollope as a visionary? And that's a different question than the one we have been talking about Largely of him as a novelist. That is true. I don't think this answer to the problem is unique to him. Maybe would be the, where I start to answer that question. So if he is a visionary, he's not alone. He's not a lone prophetic voice revealing for the first time ever that institutions don't solve problems. Uh, though he does have a correct instinct uh, in locating that human desire to have an institution solve your problem for you. Uh, I mean, Dostoevsky kind of wrestles with the same thing. We don't like to solve our problems by dealing with our neighbor, uh, whether it's, especially if it's to love them. Uh, We would much rather, I mean, that's, (laughs) I said it cynically earlier, but that's why, uh, you rarely see uh, the Matthew 18 principle followed faithfully <laughs> in Christian institutions uh, because we don't, like to, we don't like to go to our neighbor uh, and solve problems by loving them face-to-face. It's really hard 
which is also why we say our unpleasant things on social media now <laughs> instead, yeah. of, instead of into someone's face. Uh, so I think that's really... Yeah, we don't have to go to the newspaper men anymore. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's, that's exactly it. That's Tom Towers, right? Uh, I think that is a, a story as old as institutions, mm. uh, but that he is insightful to pick up on it and make use of it. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversations on Anthony Trollope's The Warden. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. Up next, The Road. The Road. It's a a very different book. We are going to discuss pages 1 through 92. And this is Amir. We're going to do four episodes on The Road. And then after that, The Hobbit, which may be a welcome break for many. Sean, give one reason why people should read The Road. (laughs) The people who have already been vocally critical of of the road or hesitant about reading the road are going to doubt me. But I think the road uh, is full of hope. Uh, And that even though there's a bleak landscape, literally and figuratively, uh, I think the contrast makes things like hope and goodness stark. Does that mean that there is an anagogical layer of interpretation that can be applied? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. 100%. Heidi, do you, what is one reason for uh, you that you would recommend people read? I agree with that. I was going to say the ending, so I was going to be a little bit more literal. <laughs> um, this is a book that if, once you start, you have to get to the end. So if you have started and you are thinking of giving up, do Hang not give up. Read it till the end. The very last page, the very last paragraph, and the very last sentence. And if you've come to a point where you think this is so bad that I cannot go on, then you are at the worst point. Right. Press on. You're, you're at the top of the hill. <laughs> Thank you for, for offering that for the, for those who are out there who are, feel like they're pushing a boulder up a hill. <laughs> and um, if nothing else, you'll get to hear Tim. That's right. Tim's going to be back. We're going to have, we're going to have uh, the whole crew. It's going to, if nothing else, you get to, Join the conversation. That's right. right. Uh, we also have our conversations over on Close Reads HQ. We are reading Kristen Lovren's letter right now. We're doing book two around the wife. And we also have our mystery novel conversations. Uh, by the time you, well, no, depending on when you're listening to this, in two days, today's Monday, the 19th, in two days, we're going to post our conversation on an Agatha Christie novel. And that was really fun. So those conversations have been great. We got yeah. super all fun. kinds of great content for you. So, any final thoughts, Heidi? No. Any final thoughts, Sean? Hang in there with Anthony Trollope. <laughs> Keep reading Anthony Trollope. Don't give up on Trollope Switch or Cormac McCarthy. That's <laughs> and if Trollope is too much of a downer, read The Road. <laughs> Get you over it. Wow, I've never, that's a sentence that nobody has ever said. <laughs> that's true. It's probably the first time in the history of the universe that anyone has ever said that sentence. Well done, Sean. Need something to cheer you up? Read The Road. <laughs> All right, well, it's the moment of truth, guys. It's time to end the podcast. So how, how should I end this? Only you can I'm know that. For Sean White and Heidi Johnson. <laughs> Again, that is how rumors That's get started. How rumors get started. <laughs> I'm just going to go alphabetical was what I was going to say, but then am I doing alphabetical last name or first name? For Heidi White, for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, happy reading. Ladies first. <laughs>